often when Indigenous people speak, uh, lots of people are not listening. <laughs> and the tangibility of the discoveries lately have really sort of driven home the point that there's a lot that people don't know about, not because people haven't been talking about it, but because others haven't been listening. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. So, Stephanie, what's going on in Canada? I'm really forced to ask myself. Just in the last few days, I've been watching extraordinary images of tiny bodies wrapped in buffalo hide being given these proper traditional burials, lovingly laid to rest in small graves as members of their community can sing and chant. Yeah, over the last few months, there's been a constant drip feed of discovery of mass graves at former residential schools for indigenous children, they were known as natives then, who died and whose bodies and stories and experiences are still coming to light. Yeah, these residential schools were an education system in name only, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that looked into them and reported in 2015. They were around for over 100 years and they were created for the purpose of separating Aboriginal children from their families. I'm still quoting from the TRC report, in order to minimise and weaken family ties and cultural linkages and to indoctrinate children into a new culture, the culture of the legally dominant Euro-Christian Canadian society, unquote. So while the government was supporting this, they were actually run by Christian churches and Catholic orders. That sounds familiar to another podcast we did on uh, Irish mother and children home, but we wanted to ask what is going on now and why? And to help us answer that, we have Rai Moran. Hi, Rai. Hi. Rai is the University of Victoria's first associate librarian with a focus on reconciliation. He was director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and has worked in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as director of statement gathering. And I understand that the National Center has permanent archive of objects, including over 7,000 audio and video statements given by residential school survivors that the TRC has collected. And we're going to carry on introducing all of our guests because we've got quite a few for this. It's a really big subject. Next up is Fanny Lafontaine. Hi, Fanny. Hi, Janet. Hi, everyone. Um, Fanny is a lawyer, a full professor at the Faculty of Law of Laval University and holder of the Canada Research Chair in International Criminal Justice and Fundamental Rights. And she co-authored the legal analysis for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And we have Karine Duhamel. Hi, Karine. Hello. Karine Duhamel is Ashinabe Meti, Director of Research for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. She worked on drafting the final report, as well as managing the Forensic Document Review Project and the Legacy Archive. She is now an independent historian. And we also have Andrew Walford. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Andrew's a professor of sociology and criminology, former president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars, current research centres on cultural techniques of group destruction deployed against Indigenous peoples in North America. So I honestly can't imagine anything more expert than the range of people that we have here today. Thank you all for joining us. But let's get started. 
this feels a bit of an exploitative question, right? But I wanted to start off with it. Do you have a personal connection to these these schools? Do you know people who were there? Was your family involved? Yeah. So my particular family's experience with residential schools is actually limited. And I'm actually very thankful for that, to tell you the truth. I would not wish the residential schools on anyone simply by virtue of what we've heard or what people have experienced. Uh, they, they have been a truly horrific system. My family is a Métis family from Manitoba. Uh, we were living in the Red River Settlement, just um, living just a tiny little bit west of uh, present-day Winnipeg. Uh, my particular family relocated out to the far west of the country in around 1920 or so. And my one uncle did end up in a day school that was run by the Sisters of St. Anne here on, on the island. Uh, that particular order has become quite uh, in focus of late, given the revelations of what's happened at the Kamloops Residential School and Cooper Island. Uh, that order was involved in both of those uh, schools. Sorry, could you just explain what some of that news is um, briefly? So the news that has come out of BC is, is largely uh, shocked the country into paying attention to this issue of unmarked burial sites across the country. Uh, the Kamloops community released uh, a very important report just about uh, five weeks ago now or so, wherein they found uh, the graves of about 200 children on the site of their residential school. Now, 200 children is what they found so far. They've surveyed two acres out of about 160 total acres on that site, and they anticipate that there will be more still to be found. Uh, to put things in perspective, that particular finding was well documented by oral history of residential school survivors and was also further documented by archaeological evidence in the early 2000s. A, a rib bone, a, a juvenile rib bone, had actually surfaced up and out of the dirt there in the cemetery location. Previous exploratory examinations of the site had also found a, a juvenile tooth on the site. That particular scenario is actually playing out in many, many places across this country right now where, where children's bones are literally surfacing up and out of the dirt. And it's something that we really have to pay attention to um, as a country and, and haven't been paying attention to for a really long period of time. What strikes me there is, it's not as if this story wasn't known. I mean, we have the oral testimony, this stuff is known, yet it's still very shocking. And Corinne, can I just repeat the same question that I asked right to you? Again, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to ask you um, just to lay bare your soul, but do you also have any family connection? Yeah, um, my great-grandmother uh, was a residential school survivor, and she didn't like to talk about that experience at all. And so in my family, um, many, many people were not even aware that that she had attended. But there was always sort of stories about uh, her, Adeline, um, talking about sort of how tough she was and how mean she could be. And it's no surprise when we think about the experiences of people that that attended that that, that is the case. And so I do have a personal connection to this history. My uh, my family is from northwestern Ontario, sort of the Thunder Bay area. And it's it's been you know, really interesting to sort of connect to some of these new findings, even though it was known that the tangible sort of image and uh, these little bodies of these babies sort of coming to light or coming 
up um, has been really sort of really challenging. And of course, my other connection is through the families and survivors that I worked with uh, in the context of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, where almost every single story that we heard had somebody who had had a family member involved in some form of this system. And so, yeah, I feel very personally connected to this and, and what's been going on lately. And so what I understand from both of you is that this was known in oral history and it was at least very well known in the community. And Rai talked about kind of bone surfacing. Is that why now there's all this attention? Did the bones kind of suddenly surface? Is there some kind of like reason why it's now coming to light? Or is Canada just now starting to dig and really explore these sites? You know, it's not surprising to people that that these things are coming to light now. But I think there has been and there continues to be to some extent a real reluctance to sort of have this moment of reckoning with Canada's past because we're still very much reckoning with the present. The issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is intimately and, and inextricably linked to this history. And so it's really kind of a strange moment where, where at least from my perspective, you know, community members and family members are saying, Yes, of course. You know, we always knew that they were there. Um, and, you know, there's a, 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 I would say, maybe a surprising or maybe not surprising number of people who are saying, well, I, you know, I had no idea. I would have never known this. Um, but I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, uh, w often when Indigenous people speak, uh, lots of people are not listening. <laughs> and the tangibility of the discoveries lately have really sort of driven home the point that there's a lot that people don't know about, not because people haven't been talking about it, but because others haven't been listening. The only thing that I might add there is that I think as a country, we can take some degree of pause and reflect on really the long road that we have collectively been walking on to bring us to this point of further realization. There's still a lot more that Canada and Canadians have to realize, and we're still very early in this journey of reconciliation. But if you go back in, in time, I mean, there's been a, a very long-standing resistance to the encroachment of the Canadian state on the lives uh, on the lives and into the lives of indigenous peoples indigenous peoples have been speaking out and certainly over the last 30 years or so there have been some very significant studies and very highly visible studies uh, related to the brokenness of the relationship between indigenous peoples and the Canadian state you know the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, obviously the uh, Missing and Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, have all been instrumental, I think, in providing Canadians with both foundational knowledge necessary and some of the language needed to understand or to even be able to articulate some of their feelings that they have. So I think what we've seen with the discoveries of late in the country is to a certain extent, and again, we still have a long, long ways to go, but a certain extent, Canadians reaching a point wherein they can actually understand a little bit more about what's going on, because we're beyond the point of explaining to them what residential schools were. We're beyond the point. I mean, we're still working on that. Like, we still got a long ways to go, but we're, we're kind of over that hump. We're, we're a little, we're getting over the hump of, of helping Canadians understand that not only did these schools exist, but also that they were truly horrific and that they were founded on the intent of separating children from their families and their cultures and languages. And I think that is 
enabled Canadians to open their hearts just a little bit more and has allowed them at this particular point of time to feel this history a little bit more fully. Because this story has been on the front page of papers previously. It's It's been on the front page of papers multiple times. I mean, even the work of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, you know, the front page of the Global Mail, CBC News, CBC National, all that kind of stuff related directly to this issue. So I've, I've asked myself a lot, like, what's different? And the only thing that I can think about is that Canadians have just taken that little bit of a step forward so that they just can understand it that little bit more so that the feelings can actually come now and the and the, actually the sense of mourning and the pain and the and the anguish really when thinking about what happened to these young kids can be felt on a much more humanistic level rather than a purely cerebral or intellectual level funny i wanted to um bring you in maybe a little bit of reaction to what we've heard there because it seems to me very multi-layered the explanations that we've heard from both Karin and Rai about the connection between the amount of truth that is already known, the histories that are there, the kind of different inquiries. I mean, you were involved in this one, this National Inquiry for Women and Girls, which says specifically it is not known, the exact number of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex and asexual people, which is just an incredible acronym that's put put in there, but just spell out how diverse these groups are. I, I'm wondering, how do you feel having been involved in in something like that now? Is truth out there somehow? Well, just to clarify first, I was um, asked by the commissioners of the National Inquiry on um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls to write the legal analysis on genocide. So I wasn't involved per se. Karen was obviously very much involved in the commission. But they heard thousands of testimonies of structural, systemic violence, historically and contemporary. And it became obvious. I think the uh, head commissioner of the commission said it was the uh, inescapable conclusion that the root cause of violence against women and girls in current days is genocide. Uh, genocide that happened, uh, you know, back in history or across decades. And we can come back to that later. But um, so, you know, I helped draft their uh, legal analysis, but the, the, the conclusion for them was obvious, hearing all the colonial violence that happened decades ago, but it is still ongoing today, constitute genocide. And one of the things I want to say about, you know, following on Karin and Rai's comments is, you know, the amount of denial uh, when the National Inquiry came out with this conclusion. And previously, just as a re as a reminder, this, this report from by the National Inquiry on Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls uh, came out in 2019. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report came out in 2015. And on the issue of residential schools alone, uh, said it was cultural genocide. That's in, that's in the report. Um, there was a lot of debate then. But the amount of denial in non-Indigenous Canadian population was astonishing. Uh, Ryan mentioned the Globe and Mail headlines <laughs> and other major newspapers in Canada it was mainly, well, genocide, nah, it doesn't add up. There's this, uh, th there was this, this vision of Canada, uh, you know, genocidaire, really, <laughs> no, you know. And what I want to say about that is basically is that there's two narratives in Canada. You know, education has been, and Andrew can talk about it way better than I do and, and my, and my other colleagues as well, but, you know, we haven't been thought 
up until really recently and, and not really perfectly still about residential schools, about, you know, we still hear about discovery. We still hear about what indigenous peoples were when uh, when Europeans came, but there's very little history that's taught in school. So it came as a surprise with the perfect narrative of Canada being, you know, the champion of human rights, you know, this perfectly multicultural country. So there's, there's this really this huge divide in the Canadian population. So when these discoveries came about the Canloops residential schools, to me, it seemed like Canada, non-Indigenous Canadians were finally reckoning with the fact that, oh, oh, it looked, it looks like mass graves. It looks like what we saw in other places where we see its genocide. And it suddenly come, come, came home that it could perhaps be as serious and as grave as, as genocide. And, and it's, I think it's really what it home and, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that it takes that. And, and, you know, Ryan Karin said this. It was well known. It was documented by the, the by the TRC. Uh, obviously, oral history to the communities. They knew. But non-Indigenous Canadians, not all of them, but, you know, many of them were just not able to really, really, uh, see that this was what this country had been built on and is still developing on, basically, genocide, ethnic cleansing, call it what you want. So this is a, this, this, it, it's sad, but true that it, it needed some kind of mass graves and, children's bones to sort of allow some of non-indigenous Canadians to, to see the reality of, uh, for, for what it was. And so now there's, um, sadly, there's a timing for, for, um, for non-indigenous Canadians to really start making some of the steps to, towards, uh, towards real uh, reconciliation, if we can call that. Andrew, you are the specialist in genocide. You're quoted in the National Inquiry report to say that Canadian scholars have not given colonial genocide in Canada enough attention, due in part perhaps to the fact that spatial and temporal boundaries of the case of genocide in Canada are not obvious. Can you kind of explain, do you share what what Fanny said, that now finally with mass graves and with these images that we know from other uh, massacres, it looks like a genocide and people are more willing to accept it as possibly a genocide? Yeah, I think we are starting to see some movement. Canadian settler denial of genocide has been very resilient. You know, Indigenous scholars and Indigenous leaders have been using this terminology of genocide for quite some time. Uh, this isn't of a recent vintage. You know, we got in the 1960s and 1970s leaders expressing their community's experiences in the language of genocide. And Canada's had a tendency to treat that as simply politicized language as something that, um, you know, is an attempt to score points rather than representing a reality. So it's taken quite a long time for people, scholars even, to recognize the reality of what group destruction entails and how it's been experienced through multiple events in Canadian settler colonialism, not just the residential schools, but everything from, you know, to t territorial removals to um, restrictions front through the Indian Act and other um, other mechanisms that have been used to target Indigenous cultures. But, you know, through the 1960s and 70s, we also had a genocide studies field that tended to focus on physical destruction solely. And that you know, sort of public consciousness of the Holocaust and public consciousness of physical destruction as the, the sort of seen as, being seen as the primary technique of genocide has uh, led many people to misunderstand the term, not understand its breadth, and not really think about what it means to destroy a group from a sociological or anthropological perspective. How do groups exist? 
what allows them to survive, and what threatens their persistence. So all these questions have largely been ignored. So I think, you know, I think Fanny's right, you know, the the appearance of the bodies as material evidence then breaks through one of those long-standing forms of Canadian settler denial that, you know, that this is somehow politicized or exaggerated, that here we see, you know, not just the more seemingly ephemeral things that scholars like myself talk about in terms of cultural destruction, but actual physical evidence of the brutality of these institutions. I wanted to ask a little bit more about cultural genocide. I mean, we have done other podcasts on genocide. Um, we've we've looked at what's happening to the Uyghurs and how you can extrapolate from the Muslim community in China and how you can extrapolate from certain bits of evidence to show what's happening to the community, for example, sterilization of women. But it's still quite, it's kind of resisted very much still at a, it feels by at a legal level sometimes to to say yes that really is genocide so i i'm wondering you know how how accepted is it across the the genocide community if you can call it that andrew yeah it's it's hard to characterize because there's different conversations going on you know social scientific historical genocide scholars uh, genocide scholars from other frameworks tend to be opening their mind a little bit more to this idea of cultural genocide. There's been a lot of work lately pushing it. And I think, you know, there's been hopefully through the the TRC and other such reports, maybe growing awareness of what cultural destruction might mean, even though there's still that resistance. So I think with all these factors, hopefully, you know, we'll see the legal field begin to grapple more and more. And I think you are seeing that in genocide case law, the ways in which maybe a case won't weigh into uh, whether or not cultural genocide occurred, but they might look at cultural genocide as, you know, uh, evidence of genocidal intent, I should say. Well, can I bring Fanny in? Just give us a tiny but deep dive into the legal legal side. Yeah, there, there are different perspectives. I'm not going to go back on a definition, but one major argument of the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls is that the destruction inherent to genocide is not cannot be, by strict treaty interpretation, the intent to destroy cannot be limited to physical or biological destruction. This is exemplified by the numerous acts in the definition, for example, torture, sexual violence, of course, transferring children from one group to the other. Uh, there's no way to be able to interpret that as with linked to the intent to destroy physically. And although the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, tried to make the point, this, this is not probably limited to that in the definition of genocide. This was upheld by the uh, by a German constitutional court in 2007, saying that the destruction can also include destruction of the group as a social unit, which is slightly distinct from cultural genocide, which was explicitly excluded. So basically, the RNI, there is an argument, and the European Court for Human Rights upheld that decision of the German courts. So this is starting to, it's also true in the legal field, that physical destruction, biological destruction, yes, but also destruction of the group as a social unit, destroying the group as such as it exists, including what ties it together. So that's one very brief way of saying this. And we follow a lot of the, the legal path. So so my then question is, if we've established or there's reason to believe that this could be a genocide, and I see there's calls for court cases, can we say still who is responsible? Because this is over so many years, uh, possibly centuries. Uh, are there still people that you could, you know, take to court other than possibly the Canadian state as a successor state of uh, the things that went before? 
where would you start uh, in such a court case and who would you bring to court? Well, if I may start, um, you said aside from the Canadian state, but that's central. Uh, the genocide convention and in customer international law prohibits genocide. Individuals can obviously commit the crime of genocide. And if that, if that happens, they can bring, be, be brought to court and to prison. But the state itself can commit genocide. And this is what the national inquiry said, because you said it can all genocide happens across decades. Uh, and international law can be qualified as a composite act. So it's numerous acts, residential schools, uh, the Indian Act, forced sedentarization, forced sterilization, numerous acts, hundreds of them across decades that taken together constitute the, pro you know, violate the prohibition on genocide. So I think the Canadian state as as the state is firstly responsible. And then I'll let others inquire about whether there are still living people that can be criminally prosecuted. But I think to really understand the nature of colonial genocide, you really need to look beyond individual criminal liability and look at the, the liability of the state per se. I am obviously biased by my ICC experience. <laughs> uh, Karine, you wanted to say something about this as well? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, many people have spoken out over the past several weeks talking about people that are still alive and, in fact, that are documented as having participated in some of these crimes. And I think, you know, there's a really important sort of piece there uh, where people are acting sometimes or, or have the perception that this residential schools piece is so far in our distance past that there is no one sort of left around. But the reality is that the schools were open well into the 1990s, right? There are people around. There are there are stories. There are survivors. Uh, there are there are perpetrators. And so I think it's important just to keep in mind that that there there this is not something that is so distant in our past that that we cannot actually find anyone who participated in it uh, it's relatively recent uh, and you know part of my generation part of the generation before mine i'm still here and i'm not that old and so i think you know it's a misnomer it's misleading to say necessarily that this is so historical that it's not pursuable now Can I ask uh, Rai what uh, your perspective is? Because you work both with the TRC and you're now working in this area of reconciliation. Is responsibility in that sense important to build towards reconciliation for you? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I, I just want to really re-echo what has already been said about the complicity or the, the really, I would say, the guilt of the Canadian state. The bureaucratization of genocide is something that has is a reality with Canadian life because we've just done genocide very bureaucratically and unconsciously to most Canadians, even though it's been very intentional, very deliberate, very planned, and has had profound, long-lasting negative effects on Indigenous communities. So the state is absolutely complicit and the state is absolutely the architect. Two, Canada still is remains very reluctant to hold itself to account and needs to have a great deal more pressure put on it internationally and from within in order to ensure the correct transparency and accountability mechanisms are in place. One of which is the very important call to action issued by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is the National Council for Reconciliation, which was both recognized by international bodies like the UN as being a necessary mechanism to continue to monitor implementation of the TRC's calls to action and to be a body that has, I would even say, semi-investigatory powers or, or fairly significant powers to compel the production of information, statistical information and other data 
to determine whether or not things are actually changing. Because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is it is about improving the relationship, but fundamentally it's also about improving the lived experiences of Indigenous peoples, which remain far greatly unequal to what mainstream Canadians enjoy. And there are significant changes that need to be seen within the Canadian state in order to ensure that Indigenous peoples themselves are living full and and, and complete and healthy lives and wellness. Um, lastly, so there's the National Council, there's other reports, there's other statistics that are supposed to be generated on an annual basis. We're not really seeing those happen as of yet in Canada, so it's not willing to hold itself to account. More so on the issue of direct individual accountability. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation were involved in a highly contentious court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada related to the records of the independent assessment process. These are the records that contain the evidence, honestly the best evidence, of the serious sexual and physical abuse that occurred in the residential schools. The Supreme Court ultimately determined that those records should be destroyed in order to protect the confidentiality of the participants in that process. In so doing, though, we are actually choosing a path of less awareness around individual accountability than we could have chosen had we decided to perhaps preserve or understand those records a little bit further. Canada has been very resistant to any information being generated from those records at all, including statistical information that does not contain personal information. Right now, there is a big list of what are called persons of interest. Every single pedophile, every single person that inflicted abuse or violence on a residential school student is documented. The number of claims inflicted by that person uh, is also accounted for. But as a country, we are choosing to destroy all of that information and choosing not to pursue any types of, um, you know, uh, subpoenas or, you know, uh, criminal charges by virtue of that information. And of course, you know, so the, the problems are is, is that this information was generated via the settlement agreement. The settlement agreement was a settlement between parties that shaped a lot of the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Part of what the parties agreed to was a reduction of liability through the settlement agreement. But I think one of the big questions for this country is how do you reconcile the horrific abuse inflicted upon children in which there is no statute of limitations and the presence of this information that could still help generate findings of criminal wrongdoing up to and including murder that exists right now, but as a country, we've decided to destroy it. So we've got some really deep-seated issues, I think, that we're still trying to overcome. And this issue of truth I think is still pretty uncomfortable for this country for a whole variety of reasons. And it's been something that has been very complex. This case has been very, very complex. It's like it's it involves all sorts of different considerations, including personal information and and, uh, and other matters. But it also contains a lot of irreplaceable information. And Andrew, from a sociological point of view, is this responsibility and ascribing responsibility and potentially having, you know, people that you can point to or a state you can point to important? I think it is, although, you know, from a sociological point of view, we have some trouble sometimes sustaining some of these categories we use in gen genocide studies of, of perpetrator, victim and bystander, given the, the obvious overlap between some of these categories. But nonetheless, I think, you know, 
holding the state to account is very important. And I think the widespread institutional complicity that Raya is referring to is also very crucial to, to target because we see you know, we can trace these networks through which policy flows and how it's implemented and how various organizations you wouldn't necessarily associate with something like residential schools were actually involved or entangled in this process in some way. You know, take RCMP or our police forces, for example. Um, so that's really important to trace that broader complicity in addition to that sort of more individualized and, and state based guilt. And I think there's also a broader, more difficult question that we have to have in Canada around the beneficiaries. I don't think we have uh, this category called bystanders for settler colonialism. Everyone is in some way implicated based upon you know, the, the land we occupy, the benefits that we've received from our society in terms of that have been you know, part of the result of that effort to remove children from their land so they would no longer be connected to their territory so that land would be more available to the settler colonial society either for resource extraction or settlement or for whatever purposes so that's a, a broader grappling that i think is you know going to be taking many generations to occur well that really leads into this question both for you kareen and to to rai i'm asking myself with this kind of deep seated nature of what happened, what can be done? You know, what would justice look like for you? Does it, are apologies enough? Is restitution enough? What do we have to do? What 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 does Canada need to do? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And if I knew the answers, I'd probably be in charge of a lot more things. But I mean, I, I think what Canada needs to do uh, is first to take a, a really hard and an honest look at itself. If we want to be uh, the country that we tell ourselves that we are, uh, I think that we have to start uh, not by skipping to the reconciliation part, but starting with the truth truth and reconciliation, right? Which is something we've often been unwilling to do. I think at a concrete level, um, this means looking at systems and structures that still exist and still perpetuate much of the violence that people live with on a daily basis. For instance, you know, many of the folks that we heard from during the inquiry who had a history within the residential or day school system had current implications with child welfare, had children who had been taken away from them, and they couldn't get them back. And so I think we have to take a bit of a long view, and we have to look at some of the systems and structures that continue to sort of perpetuate bureaucratic violence, actual violence, right? Um, and one of the things that, you know, I carry with me that, that was very striking from the inquiry was the fact that, you know, countless people said culture is safety, right? And so we need to move beyond band-aid solutions or slapping some cash on a program or an initiative. And we need to actually turn to people, uh, to Indigenous peoples, and to let them think about what safety looks like for them, what justice looks like for them. There's many Indigenous languages that don't have a word for reconciliation, but they have words for justice. Or they have words for other things that are meaningful in community, that are meaningful to people. So I think, it, you know, in part, it's a dismantling. In part, it's a real hard look. Um, and in part, it's really thinking about, you know, what are what are these undercurrents? What are these more deeper level sort of structural forces that still operate and still place pressure on people? And how do we confront things like 
social, economic, and political marginalization? How do we confront things like a lack of cultural safety? How do we confront things that ultimately make it so that violence can continue because we aren't necessarily pointing to a particular person? It's quote unquote, just the way things are. I think that's what we need to really look at. Why are things the way they are? Right. Do you agree? Or because I had the sense from some of the things you were saying that uh, that some, some actual solid elements of justice that are needed from your your perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, there's even a, a quote that hangs on the wall of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And you know, I'll paraphrase it here, but it says there's there's no word for justice in the Cree language. The closest translation means you've been listened to by somebody compassionate and fair and your needs are taken seriously, which sounds pretty good to me. If we start applying that concept of justice to the work that's necessary, first of all, we need people to be compassionate and fair. And Canadians still are not in their perspectives and interface with Indigenous peoples. I think the news over the last little bit has helped Canadians demonstrate some of their compassion for Indigenous children, especially in regards to the grave sites. But we've still got a long ways to go and we can still see the pushback and the denialism that's happening and the hardness. The fairness, of course, we're, we're, we're far from living in a fair country right now. So I think what, what Canada has to do is it, it has to fundamentally shift its worldview and start taking the solutions provided by Indigenous people seriously. And Indigenous peoples have been providing solutions for a really long period of time. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to go back to all of the various inquiries that we've invested in, like Hawthorne, uh, the Red Paper, RCAP, TRC, AJI, Ipperwash, Stonechild, MMIWG, and actually look at those as being really well thought out solutions to longstanding problems. We have to look at implementation of treaty promises and other historical agreements as being solutions to longstanding problems to this broken relationship. We have to look seriously at the imbalance of our human rights framework in this country. And we have to begin to very seriously start understanding that Indigenous peoples are rights-bearing peoples and that they have human rights and that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples provides a framework for the protection of human rights. And we're just kind of at the outset of that in this country. I mean, we just have kind of, in the last couple of years, dropped our objector status, which is a national embarrassment. And then we have to start doing the hard work. I think the TRC's calls to action address both the things that need to change right away to deal with the trauma and the legacy of the residential schools. And then the second half address how we need to reconfigure and reshape our relationship. And there's a lot of stuff in there. But fundamentally, it has to be based on rights. It has to be based on human rights, human dignity, strong principles, and and really on these grand principles of justice, fairness, equality, equity, uh, so on and so forth that we continue to, you know, lack in this, in the society as a whole. Fanny, I see that you want to react and I'll let you react. But I also wanted to ask you and Andrew and also Karine and Rai, how do you deal with your sense of Canadian identity uh, against this this backdrop of these these stories? Well, first, a quick reaction. Um, obviously, 
you know, Kagan and Rai really highlighted what Canada needs to do. Um, broadly speaking, I don't know if you'll agree, it's decolonization to a certain extent. It's to undo the unjust consequences that are still ongoing in Canada of colonization. So that includes implementing the calls for action, calls for justice, all the recommendations that were done, giving back uh, Indigenous peoples their right to self-determination, uh, which, you know, and, and everything that they said. And my only point I wanted to add is that everything they highlighted is legal obligations for Canada. And Justice uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has accepted publicly that it was genocide. We haven't gone to court over that. That would be complex, but perhaps that's what's needed to make sure that uh, the reparations needed, cessation, everything that Ryan Karin just highlighted as legal obligations are actually implemented. Because as Ryan mentioned earlier, Canada is, as a state, responsible for implementing these changes. But they're also at the core, there's a sort of a catch-22 here, right? So uh, Ryan mentioned the sort of uh, oversight that could be done by uh, one mechanism in Canada. International oversight could be another option, but at one point there's going to be a need for um, for Canada and Indigenous nations to really interact on a on a on an equal level, which is which hasn't happened yet. So just to add on that, this is um, important to mention that I think all of those things that Canada needs to do are legal obligations following uh, violations of the Genocide Convention and other human rights treaties, and that will perhaps have an impact later on. Uh, let uh, Andrew react as to his Canadianship, <laughs> perhaps <I'll, laughs> as Quebecois. I don't know what I would answer to that. So <laughs> no, but uh, I'll just say something. I think all non-Indigenous Canadian, you know, settlers need to. Um, move on from a perspective of, uh, of settler to allies and really listen to what Indigenous peoples need and have to say, not take over their voices, but rather listen and act hand in hand with them, basically, if I could just sum up like this. And I'll just add that, you know, I don't think national identity is a, a very helpful way to conceive of belonging within a place or amongst the people. Um, it tends towards a sort of protective stance uh, that seeks to preserve a, a sort of purified identity of, of goodness, of peacefulness, and all these things that have echoed throughout the Canadian mythology uh, that still come to the surface. Uh, the Premier of Manitoba recently, in response to the tearing down of the statue of Queen Victoria, said, you know, the, the people who came to this country didn't come to tear things down, they came to build up. He was able to draw upon this myth of the peaceful Canadian settlers coming to build a new country that has been so persistent in Canada. So I think there's more maybe um, value in, in relational understandings of identity and that, you know, I think these are also probably familiar to the Indigenous peoples in the area I live, this idea that, you know, one has relationships with the territory, with uh, the more than human inhabitants of the land, with uh, your your fellow human beings who share this space. And with those relationships come responsibilities, become um, you know ways in which to try to, you know, responsibilities towards hospitality, towards others, towards listening, and the sort of, you know, ethic that Rai was communicating earlier, I think is a better way to think of connection and belonging than uh, some idea of uh, us sharing some mythical core because of uh, how this nation came to to be is that also for you kareen and Roy? is there a sense of canadianness or not at all or are i it's hard to for me to gauge from uh from the netherlands i have to admit <laughs> I, do, I i tend to agree with much of what andrew said i think a lot of sort of the core of canadiana is an imagined sort of story of these embattled settlers up against this vast wilderness when the reality is we were already here 
you know, my ancestors were already here. And so, you know, do I identify as Canadian? Not really. I think I'm the sum of my relationships. I'm the sum of of the people who have walked with me, who have walked before me, who will walk after me. Um, And so for me, it's not really a you know, I'm not I'm not focused on or centered on or really relating to that, you know, what is Canadian sort of piece. Yeah, and for me, I I, I have hope for Canada, I guess. It's still in a lot of different ways. I'm I'm despite everything that's still happening, I'm I remain quite hopeful and optimistic. And I suppose that's a necessary survival mechanism because uh, you can't do this work without hope because <laughs> it's so it can be pretty pretty bleak. You know. I think with really, really, really strong caveats to the statement, I mean, there's there's a thread of truth in the the sense that Canada has been a bit of a bastion of safety for people fleeing atrocities around the world. We have got the start of something that is special in Canada, I think, in certain regards, in that we have been able to provide a, a modicum of safety. I mean, there's there's lots of different challenges that we have here domestically. In providing that safety to newcomers, though, of course, or a modicum of safety to newcomers, we have made this country exceptionally dangerous for Indigenous peoples. And that's been, you know, revealed by the work of the inquiry. It's been revealed by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and a lot of different ongoing complaints and issues and you know, grievous harms in the healthcare system and policing and justice, so on and so forth. So I, I guess my hope for this country is, is when we, when it becomes much safer in many different ways, shapes and forms, safer for human inhabitants, safer for the other forms of indigenous life or the uh, indigenous life of these lands for whales, for birds, for fish, for insects, for trees, you know, the process of colonization that has occurred here in Canada has been both rapid, all-consuming, and profoundly destructive. I mean, it, this is the one thing, if we ever have to question whether or not it was genocide of Indigenous peoples, we just have to look at the treatment of land. And we can see that the inevitable outcome of the system that has been imported here is inevitably genocide, because in every single other indicator, we've reached you know, destruction of genocidal levels. You know, fish populations that have absolutely collapsed on the East Coast that are collapsing as like right in front of us on the West Coast. You know, historical populations of almost every single major indicator species being at, you know, bare minimum levels. So the hope is that we actually begin to learn to live together respectfully, safely in a, in a mutually respectful way in this country. And, and we've got so much distance to cover. But if Canada wants to have any sort of, you know, credibility as a protector of human rights, it's got to do the hard work at home first and, you know, focus on doing things now properly in a good way, in a sincere way, in an authentic way. Uh, only then will I begin to feel like, you know, we're, we're a country that we can even have some degree of pride in or something like that. And big air quotes, big air quotes around pride. Towards the end of the podcast, we always start off with one extra question for everybody, which is because we know that we probably haven't given you all the opportunity to say exactly what you want. What question didn't we ask you that we should have done? So let's start with you, Andrew. 
Um, well, I feel I gave you a very abbreviated answer on, on cultural genocide. I don't know if I need to say anymore. I think it's important to consider cultural genocide not as a separate type of genocide, but as a technique. I think that's always been the way that Raphael Lemkin framed it. It was one of many techniques through which genocide can be perpetrated. And it was often in combination with others. So I know the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was limited by their mandate in terms of what they could say about genocide in Canada. But I think, you know, if you're saying cultural genocide, for me, you're basically saying it is genocide, that this is a group a form of group destruction has taken place or attempted group destruction has taken place. Um, so I wanted to reiterate that. And, and from a sociological standpoint, that's really important because we think about how groups sustain themselves and how they continue into the future. And this this idea of culture is very important as this both persistent yet flexible and fluid um, glue that people can use to uh, sustain their relationships and to speak to one another, to uh, create together, uh, to imagine a future together. So I don't know if I covered that enough, but that would be my point. And Roy? You know, the only thing that really comes to mind right now is just, to me, I think there's a strength and a danger, I think, in a word like genocide in some ways, because it's it's a strong word if we can understand the depth and breadth of what it means. It's a dangerous word if we start tossing it around casually because it lacks the depth and breadth. And what I know from my journey through, you know, the oral history work and, and the travels across the country is like just seeing how big the system of genocide and the structures of genocide have been in this country is what I find still quite continuously horrific and shocking. And because, you know, even when we use a term like the word group, we're talking about nations here in this country. It's not just like a group and one. We're talking about multiple nations in all corners of the second largest country on the face of the earth. And then the multiple forms at the multiple sort of fronts of genocide in this country, too, have been really just this all encompassing. I, I heard it described once as a tsunami that has washed over this country. So I, I, I guess that's that's just the I think that the challenge for at least for Canada and for Canadians is just understanding the breadth and scope and depth of the actions that have been undertaken. And I think that's where we're still at the outset of the truth-telling journey. And I, I suppose one of the senses of a mourning that I have for this country, and it, and it probably is, it's been really present within my own emotional feelings since um, the discoveries in Kamloops, is that I can just see a lot more mourning still to come in the future for Canadians as they begin to understand more and more and more about what's happened. And their hearts will continue to hurt for a very long period of time as they learn more because what has happened has been so unjust and so unfair and so so horrific, actually. Fanny, what did you not get the chance to say but wanted to say? You're pretty good. Uh, you asked a lot. But uh, I know your podcast is listened to by a lot of international law scholars, practitioners, uh, people interested in international criminal law. But I just want to I just want to invite everyone that's uh, focused on international law, international politics, to um, 
Not do what a lot of international lawyers do, even judges. Copy and paste previous analysis without actually, really, doing the analysis for themselves. The Genocide Conventions is a human rights treaty. Interpretation is, it's not just an international crime committed by individuals, it's different. And I ask, I invite everybody that's listening to this to actually do the analysis by themselves, to open up their eyes and open up their, their, the way of looking at international law and specifically the genocide convention and the genocide definition to look at its true nature and see it through, of course, the lens of the atrocities committed here. As Ryan, as Ryan mentioned, it's, it's colonial genocide is a, is a different way of destruction, but it's still genocide. And it's interesting because it's, it's of course, it's applicable to Canada. It's applicable elsewhere. And that contributes, I think, for all of us to the broader decolonization of international law. And I'm sorry to make that call out here, and a, but it's interesting and I think it's important for us from everywhere to actually look at international law for different lens. And this is not a radical interpretation of the Genocide Convention that uh, we're talking about here in Canada. It is absolutely a plausible interpretation that doesn't take away, it just goes a little differently than what normal tribunals have looked at in a very specific uh, individual criminal, criminal liability perspectives. So open up your eyes and uh, bring uh, join the, uh, the conversation and a discussion that would be uh, very uh, good for all of us. And uh, Corinne, do you have uh, uh, something else that we haven't managed to ask you that you would like to uh, to share with us now? I guess uh, one of the thoughts that I have on this, I think often we look at, at sort of issues of this scope or character through a very macro lens. We look at it at 30,000 feet. Um, and, you know, in, in keeping with what other folks have said, I would I would really encourage folks who are interested in this and interested in the Canadian context to really take the opportunity, take the time to go into the final report for the National Inquiry, to read some of the stories, to go into the TRC's final report, to hear from survivors. Because one of the things that we identified uh, in the National Inquiry's final report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls was that in every story that we heard, there was sort of this series of encounters with a structure, with a person, or with an institution that ultimately directed people towards being targeted, towards danger, right? And I think the devil is in those details, right? The, the, the things that we can identify uh, in terms of liability, if that's what people are interested in, or gaps in services, or knowing that something was wrong and failing to do anything about it, actually live in those experiences. They live in those stories. So I would just really encourage folks to take the opportunity to look at sort of these, the value that comes from the experiences, the, the, the knowledge that comes from the experiences that are lived on the ground by people who survived these things and to really think about you know what what those mean in broader context uh, rather than just focusing on the really big questions sometimes at the end of the podcast we ask people what they've been reading and uh, listening to uh, this time we're just going to say hey everybody we're going to put links up to these reports and uh, ask as the scholars here have uh, told us to read and uh, this is the homework not uh, not getting back on Netflix but uh, actually looking at the detail that is already out there because um, there's a lot that we all have to learn so uh, I think that's it for now so thank you all very very much for giving up your uh, uh, some of your summer holidays to to talk to us we really appreciate you making the time thank you very much This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. 
It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>